This is the Uptake Podcast with your host, John Taylor. Welcome back to another edition of The Uptake. I'm your host, John Taylor. Normally on The Uptake, I do a one-on-one interview with someone, and this episode is a little bit different. It's not a one-on-one interview per se. It's kind of a different one-on-one. In this case, it's about my grandfather, William Taylor. He passed away recently at the ripe old age of 103. So today's show will be about him, and will include some of his story in his voice. First off, some apologies if this seems a little self-indulgent, but I felt like a tribute to him was in order, and this is one way, at least my way, to try to do that. And, you know, he has some interesting stories throughout his life that I thought were worth recording for posterity. He led a remarkable life. He always said that there could be a book about him, and... Um, That was not in a self-aggrandizing way, but in a grateful way for all the good fortune that he experienced. And it's easy to see why, given all the adventures he had, and we'll get to some of those adventures in today's show. In any case, he felt like he was the luckiest person alive. He would say that often, and he often described his life as a series of miracles. Which is an amazing thing, considering some of the losses and tragedies he suffered along the way. So, at times during the first portion of today's show, we'll include the audio from an interview he did in 2006 with Dr. William Oldson. Dr. Oldson is with the Institute on World War II at Florida State. In that audio, you will hear my grandfather and, at times, Dr. Oldson. Just for what it's worth... I referred to him, as everyone else in our family did, as Pop. I'll refer to him that way for the rest of today's show as well. Pop was born in 1916 in Jacksonville, Florida, and he was the oldest of three children of Leslie and Pansy Taylor. A side note, those are some classic names from years past. I don't think I've met any um, Leslie's or Pansy's (laughs) since then. And Pop's dad worked in the Jacksonville shipyards and in fact served briefly in World War I. When Pop was five, he was diagnosed with polio. And just a a quick uh, note about polio. uh, It's a virus, as you probably know, and it became a real problem in the early 1900s. It killed thousands uh, in the United States until Jonas Salk came up with a vaccine in the 1950s. One of the symptoms could be paralysis of parts of the body, typically arms or legs. And for those that survived, many lived on only using a big breathing apparatus called an iron lung. There were these annual epidemics of polio, mostly in the summer, that affected children in cities around the country, and Jacksonville was no exception. In any case, as a result, Pop uh, had polio and was in leg braces at age five, which was really tough on a kid at that age, as you can imagine. And worst of all, there is a high rate of long-term paralysis and even death in children with polio in Jacksonville back then. 
So after care and home remedies from his grandmother, which he swore on many occasions mainly consisted of rubbing his legs with olive oil, he recovered fully. And according to Pop, he was only one of two cases out of 500 that year in Jacksonville that had that sort of recovery. And this is one of the earliest of a series of miracles in his life that Pop would often tell us about. Soon after, in 1924, he and his family moved to Miami when he was just eight years old. He grew up during this time of prohibition, and in fact, remembers uh, having some relatives of his in the liquor smuggling business, specifically an uncle or two who were apparently bootleggers. He accompanied those uncles on trips running alcohol from Miami to Chicago, and Pop was brought along, again, he was just a kid, he was just eight, as um, cover by his uncles, as if they were taking a family trip. So the car would be loaded down with booze, covered up with blankets and fishing poles and um, picnic stuff, Uh, and half of the booze hidden in the car was apparently used to pay off the local police, who would tell them where the federal marshals or roadblocks might be set up ahead. Anyway, Papa experienced all that as a child of the 1920s. In fact, he made his way afterwards through school as a very good student and even into what turned out to be a long-term career. Let's hear about that from Pop in his own words. And again, this is one of the first of several audio clips from the interview he did in 2006. All of my public schooling was in, was in, uh, in, in Mama, Florida. I graduated from Mama Senior High School in June of 1934. Uh, I was a National Honor student. In those days, we had very little money, and there were no jobs, and very few boys out of my class even tried to go to college. Uh, I was fortunate enough to to pass a, a civil service examination in the post office. I went to work in the post office November the 1st, of 1935, except for the time in the military, I worked in the post office until 30th day of May of 1972. Pop met the love of his life, my grandmother, Frances, in 1933. At the time, Pop had a paper route, and as part of that paper route, every week, he would collect payment by going to a local home and there was a brick wall in front of the house that had a loose brick. And behind that loose brick was typically an envelope with the money paying him for delivering that week's papers. One week, the money wasn't there. So he went and knocked on the front door. And my grandmother, Frances, opened the door. They'd never met before. She was a senior in high school at the time. He was just one year out of high school. And he was just so struck with her that he asked her out on the spot and later on called this twist of fate, this meeting of, quote, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen, a miracle. So they courted for a while, which was the word back in those days. And one of the things they do is take these Sunday afternoon drives around Miami. It would be him, Francis, and her father, which was in the role of chaperone, I suppose. This is what you did back in those days. The three of them would stop along canals that ran through the area, 
pull over the car and uh, Francis was a great shot with a rifle and the men would sit down and point out driftwood passing by in the canals and bet on whether or not she could hit those uh, targets with the rifle they kept in the trunk of the car. So just a great old story. It's difficult to imagine a date like that these days, but nonetheless, that's how they would spend some of their time. They got married in 1935 and truly were a great-looking couple. Seeing a picture of them now, we always remark that they look like they could be movie stars. Around the same time, he was in the early part of his career with the post office. He worked as a letter carrier, a mailman. A lot of the mail was being delivered by bicycle. So he rode a bike around Miami for several years, during which time he and Francis had their son, my dad, in 1937. Pop delivered mail and worked his way up in the Miami post office until he was drafted in January 1943 to serve in World War II. And this, of course, is when several of his most interesting adventures and miracles took place. Like most soldiers, Pop's service in World War II took him to a number of places. The first stop for him was Camp Blanding, which was not too far from his birthplace in Jacksonville, Florida. From there, he went to basic training in Boston, Massachusetts, then to his first combat post in Hartford, Connecticut. In Hartford, he was in a coastal defense unit, which were anti-aircraft guns that the U.S. had all along the Atlantic coast. There was concern at the time that Germany would bomb American factories near the coast, so we wanted to make sure we had defenses in place. And he trained there near Hartford by shooting at radio-controlled target airplanes, which seems pretty high-tech to me for the 1940s. But every night they had the miserable work after training all day of cleaning and oiling and putting away the guns. On one of those evenings... Pop had a stroke of good luck. But you know, you always heard in the Army, never, never, never volunteer for anything. That was standard procedure. You don't volunteer for anything. But one of these days, we came in from shooting guns all day long. Of course, that night, you got to clean the guns. And if it, I think it was our last day that you got to pack up in Cosmoline and all this kind of stuff. And so we no more than got in off the range that somebody came through. We need 10 volunteers. Well, I thought, well, anything's got to be better cleaning guns, so I volunteered. And 10 of us did. And you know what? They never forget this. They said, put on your ODs, you're going to a party. You ever hear Williamsport, New Hampshire? Well, this was a city where there was all New England, all new, uh, uh, northern cities that had a had two main boulevards with a great big park in the middle. And these great big houses up on the side. Well, in one of those houses over this party, there was a bunch of women there had a party. We wanted to have a party, didn't have any men. <laughs> so, boy, we had a we had a blast, you know. And the, the other guy that didn't volunteer cleaning guns are weird. <laughs> I've often thought about what a deal that was, you know. That was one of the really pleasant experiences I had all the time I was in service. Eventually, the army came to the conclusion that there was very little threat of the Germans actually bombing New England, 
So Pop and his comrades were transferred from those northeastern positions to a base in rural Oklahoma, where he was trained to be what's called a combat engineer. Combat engineers, if you aren't already familiar, are the soldiers who built things like bridges and airfields. They constructed camouflage. They helped uh, conduct river crossings by using boats or rafts or making makeshift bridges. But they were also responsible for blowing stuff up or keeping things from blowing up, like enemy bombs, landmines, and booby traps. And for his squad of about a dozen soldiers, he was picked to be the explosives and demolition expert. So he learned all about bombs and booby traps and all kinds of very dangerous equipment. In any case, Pop trains in Oklahoma in August, which was apparently brutal. After training was over, he was sent back to Boston, where he got on a ship along with a lot of other new soldiers to be sent over to England in December. Pop spent the next couple of years in Europe fighting in the war. At first, he was stationed in England preparing for the Battle of the Bulge. He went through rifle training, bayonet training, learned how to dig foxholes, and he was waiting to fly out on wooden gliders to the battle, sitting along with all of his comrades on their duffel bags, about to be dropped off in one of the worst battles in the war, when the mission for his particular unit was canceled. So his unit of army engineers moved throughout England, France, and Germany, doing their job. They were clearing minefields, blowing up or building bridges, guarding camps, having yet more training, transporting fuel, and in general, he was able to avoid close hand-to-hand combat. However, it wasn't all good luck. For example, one New Year's Eve, he spent the night digging a 10 by 10 garbage pit with his squad because a couple of guys happened to be late that day. He got stuck on a boat once, waiting in the middle of the English Channel, waiting for fog to clear. And by stuck, I mean for several days, just bobbing up and down on the channel, going through bouts of seasickness. But the key moments, the ones he'd tell us about time and time again, were those that kept him out of harm's way. During explosives training in England, he was standing in a small group, examining a new kind of very deadly, very reliable German landmine. They put a block of TNT in that with a with a with a with a pressure charge on it, and stored it in high grass. If you stepped on it, it blew. Okay. Well, they had a they had one of these showing us. They all they had they, they had the igniter, and they had the explosive, passing it around. The guy right next to me squeezed that. And it exploded. The igniter fired and turned that block of TNT into talcum powder. Nobody could believe it. This will not happen. This is TNT. It's foolproof. Right next to me. But I had the funniest feeling. And, and you know, I've often wondered. Was God trying to save me or somebody else in that crowd? It took the hand of God to keep that from firing. It had to fire. 
There's no doubt it would have killed me. Just as Pop said, the mine should have exploded, killing everyone. But by some stroke of good fortune, or by his telling, divine intervention, it was a dud. So finally, after the war in Europe was over, Pop shipped off to the Philippines. His unit started learning how to use scuba equipment and how to defuse underwater mines. The plan was that when the U.S. would invade Japan, that he and his fellows would go into the Japanese harbors first and clear out the mines so American ships could enter. It was very likely a suicide mission. There was no solid plan for getting them back out. Instead, the U.S. dropped bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and things ended without an invasion. Pop was able to spend the rest of the war tearing down and cleaning up the bases on the Philippines. You know, the less deadly kind of army engineering work. And so he was able to return to Miami to be with Francis and their son, Bill, my dad, after serving for almost three years in the kind of unit, doing the kind of jobs that had a very high mortality rate, all without a single injury. Was this due to luck or miracles? I'm not sure that I'm qualified to say, but I do know he made it out in one piece and now was ready to move on with the rest of his life. After the war, when he was back home in Miami, Pop went back to his job in the post office as a letter carrier. Over the years, he was promoted up through the Postal Service. In fact, he achieved some notoriety in planning delivery routes. I became, uh, I, I developed a national reputation, shall I say, as an expert in student delivery. My immediate boss and I helped write training manuals, evaluation manuals, which turned out to be used by the post office. Looking to say, I, I, I had a, my reputation was such as this. My immediate boss would tell people, if Bill Taylor says it's so, that's the way it is. He and Francis lived in Miami, raised my dad, and eventually, Pop retired from the Postal Service in 1972. Then they moved to Tallahassee in 1974, where he got his real estate license and worked as a real estate agent for about eight years. His beloved wife, my grandmother Frances, died in 1980, which was, understandably, a huge blow. She was, after all, the love of his life, and he said he knew he would never marry again. He transitioned to life as an almost full-time volunteer fundraiser for his church, the Lutheran Church. He traveled from place to place all across the country, bolstering the church's fundraising programs. He'd come in as an organizer and motivational speaker of sorts. One of his famous lines was, Want to know how to raise money? Reach in your wallet or purse and take some out. And he backed up those words. For the last quarter of his life, at least 25 years, he gave half of his money, half his modest social security and pension incomes, to charities and the less fortunate, literally half. So he crisscrossed the country by car, doing his best to help various Lutheran churches. He always avoided interstates so he could better experience the countryside. Pop wore out two new Toyota Corollas in the process, each racking up several hundred thousand miles. He claims he never stayed in hotels, that members of the congregations he visited put him up. 
and those people became his dear friends. In the 70s and 80s, he often spent time in Tampa with his family, me, my sister, and my parents. I remember him as happy, gregarious, and easygoing. My mother loved cooking meals for him. He loved pretty much everything, and he ate plenty. He played cards with anyone, loved to tell stories, and became fast friends and family to those he spent time with. In the summers, he would take my sister Kate and I to Bush Gardens Theme Park. I could still remember the smell of coffee and well-worn cloth seats in his Corolla as we'd head to the park early in the morning. We went so often that the three of us devised the ideal sequence and pathways to hit all our favorite spots as quickly as possible. The log flume, bumper cars, the dolphin show. Pop loved it all and seemed a lot like us, a kid. The backstop to all these good times was that he was forthright, lived by his convictions, and was dedicated to helping others. So we all knew him as the traveling, door-to-door man of faith and fun, a one-man band who was a charismatic force of nature. Soon, he had another chapter in his life, one he'd been convinced would never happen. One day, in my junior year in high school, Pop knocked on our door in Tampa. This was unusual. Pop was family, of course, and would normally just come in, calling out, hello, or what's cooking? So we answered the door, and there's Pop standing there with a woman none of us recognized. He introduced us to Ginny, letting us know that the two of them were engaged to be married. As Pop explained, Bill's mother died in 1980. And I knew I'd never get married again. Well, I'm a church volunteer. I kid you not. I have been involved in the raising of millions of dollars for my church. Well, one time I had occasion to go to this church in, in Winter Park, Florida. And when I when I visit, I I'd ask the pastor if he could if he could put me up in somebody's house or keep me out of motels. And so when I got there, he said, the only place I can find for you is a widow lady about 14 miles out of town has got a, a spare bedroom and a bath. I went. I married that lady. Love at first sight. After they married in 1989, they lived at Ginny's home on a lake in central Florida. Ginny was a good match for Pop with the same free-spirited outlook on the world. There was someone in a gorilla suit at their wedding reception, for example. They replaced Pop's Corolla with a Mustang, and the two of them traveled, still running the circuit of Lutheran churches across the country, and even took train trips to Seattle and the American Southwest. At one point, on a road trip, they took a wrong turn and accidentally joined a small-town parade. This was no problem for Pop and Ginny. They stayed in the parade, just waving as they went. She also shared his passion for helping others. They adopted and made trips and donations to American Indian schools. They supported seminarians and volunteered at community events. They truly had a wonderful time together. Ginny passed away in 1998, relatively suddenly. Like other parts of Pop's life, 
Their nine years together was full of adventure and good times. And just as Pop proved time and again, he took that devastating loss and kept on living the way he always had, with gratefulness, passion, and that ever-present sense of humor. Pop moved back to Tallahassee once again for the final chapters of his life, to be near his family, my parents, my sister, and our now-growing families. He bought a little house and lived independently there for some time, taking care of his own yard, walking the neighborhood daily, and taking abbreviated solo road trips around the area. He remarked to me how one of his favorite things was to simply set out in the morning to cruise the two-lane country roads in South Georgia. He was a fixture at our family's weekly Sunday gatherings, eating an impressive plate of food, usually followed by ice cream. Klondike bars were just about his favorite. Every departure from those get-togethers usually included someone saying, See you next week, Pop, with his usual reply, The Lord willing and the creek don't rise. Getting up into his 90s and suffering the increasing effects of old age, he eventually had to give up one of his passions, driving. There was no drama involved in this, no family intervention where we asked him to turn in his license. He just decided to do it, and it was done. And I don't think anyone ever heard him grumble about it or mourn the loss of his favorite hobby, and it was a way of life he'd enjoyed for 40 years. Pop now had to rely on others for transportation, which mainly consisted of my sister Kate taking him on weekly errands. Within just a few more years, he relocated to an apartment in an assisted living facility. Another new wrinkle for him was his use of a motorized scooter when out shopping, and what seemed like an amping up of his already impressively loud speaking voice, no doubt due in part to his failing hearing. This combination of developments produced its own batch of stories, and helped Kate amass a lifetime's worth of good karma for shuttling Pop around. A regular highlight was grocery shopping, where he befriended the cashiers and baggers at the store. He demonstrated that decades of expert driving did not mean ready-made expertise at navigating a scooter. Kate could usually locate Pop in the store several aisles away by the sounds of falling inventory or the sight of an employee jogging towards a minor calamity. Whether sipping a coffee in the store's deli or wheeling down the hallway leading to his apartment, Pop would remark on the people he saw. I'm sure that he thought that only Kate or I could hear him, but in reality, everyone within about 50 feet could. Kate and I joked that we should carry around a sign that said sorry for just such occasions. In any case, these closer-to-home adventures became some of our favorite stories about life with Pop. At the end of 2015, at age 99, Pop endured what may be his most difficult loss yet. My dad passed away after a lengthy battle with cancer. This was obviously a very hard time for my mom, my sister and I, for everyone. But for Pop, it seemed uniquely tragic. After losing his two wives, both younger than he, he now had to face the loss of his son. It was devastating news. I'll never forget sitting at my dad's bedside then, as Pop said to him, We're both headed to the same place, son. 
you just took a shortcut. That statement and the tearful way he said it embodied a lot about Pop, his faith, his perspective on life, and an underlying optimism. For his last chapter, Pop's next four years were amazing in their own, more subtle way. He passed the ripe old age of a hundred and became the oldest person pretty much anyone in our circle ever knew. At Veterans Day ceremonies, he usually stood out as the only World War II representative still around. His errands with Kate continued, as did his penchant for unintentionally loud and sometimes awkward commentary. When he had the energy to attend Sunday service at the local Lutheran church, where he was known and beloved, he took to whistling during the service, as if he was the only one that could hear it. During this time, on days when he was feeling particularly fatigued, he would say, You know, I think I'm just starting to get old. But that was about as close to complaining as he'd get. The rest of it was his usual friendly greetings. He'd reminisce about his love for Francis, the good years he had with Ginny, or how my dad was the most brilliant person he ever met. Pop was ever the positive, grateful person. In his final months, things came to a close for Pop in a peaceful, uncomplicated way. There wasn't much in the way of possessions or money to deal with. His long-standing practice of giving away half of his money had worked out just fine in the end. And mercifully, there was relatively little pain or drama. After a week or two of his body's final winding down, apparently he was indeed starting to get old. And with only a few days using a hospital bed in his apartment, he made one last road trip. He moved to the local hospice house one evening, along with only a few pictures of his loved ones. He passed away peacefully the next morning, just minutes after a visit from my mom, my sister Kate, and his Lutheran pastor. Finally, Pop had reached the end. That destination that he mentioned when sitting at my dad's deathbed, it was no shortcut for Pop. He took the long way to get there, and all of us were better for it. I, for one, am so grateful to have had a great-grandfather in my life. Most folks don't have that privilege. People would often marvel at his age, almost making it to 104. And it's easy to focus on that, that quantity of life. But for Pop, the example he gave us was much more about the quality and the adventure of living. How to always try to help others, to live true to your principles, and how to deal with the hardest times, and how to make the most of the good times. We'll miss you, Pop. I'll miss you. Thank you for making us part of your legacy, part of your life's adventure. This episode of The Uptake was written and produced by me, John Taylor, with special thanks to the Institute on World War II and the Human Experience, and to Kate Stratton. And thanks to Kevin McLeod for the music in today's podcast. His music can be found at incompetech.filmmusic.io. I'd love to hear your feedback. You can email me at 
uptakepodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at uptakepodcast. Thank you for listening.